Well, good morning, familia. If you're new with us, uh, welcome. My name is Misael, and I'm just so glad you're here. I really hope that somebody said, like, hello, or shook your hand, give you a hug, fist bump before you slid on the ice, because, man, we think and we value intentional hospitality here at our church. And so I uh, just welcome. Good morning. Uh, this morning is going to be a fun Sunday. I really think it's going to be a fun Sunday. Uh, we're starting a new series called Transformed, or if you want to be fun, you can say Transformado. That's transformed in Spanish. And so as we start this new series, we're going to see a couple things in First uh, Peter. So we're going to be in First Peter. And as we look at a couple things, we're going to realize that God is with us in the suffering. That's the first thing we're going to see in First Peter. And then we're going to see that God is the agent, like the one, the only one in the world who can actually administer real change and real transformation in the world and in our life in the midst of all of these things. And so I want you guys to go ahead and turn to 1 Peter with me. 1 Peter, and, and here's the thing, don't be afraid to like go to the very, you know, um, uh, very beginning of your Bible and look at the table of contents and say, okay, honestly, I forgot where 1 Peter's at. And uh, don't be afraid to check it out because uh, that's where we're gonna be. And as you look there, it's actually in the New Testament, 1 Peter's in the New Testament. And so as you're looking for 1 Peter, there's a couple things that I just want to remind us of because I think they're so timely, right? So the whole sermon series is called Transformed, Transformado, Transformation, this whole thing of change. And honestly, I just think it's so timely for us because our church is going through this season of change. Uh, for those of you who know, some of those of you who don't know, we actually just finished changing the name of our church to the Mission Church, La Misión Iglesia. And we made that decision together as a church family. And, and as I think about this whole name change for us, um, there's a lot of really cool things that are going to happen and are about to happen. Not only are we going to, you know, change some signage outside and inside and create some social media uh, channels in order for us to communicate and just tell people uh, what's happening. But I think all of this actually provides a beautiful opportunity for us, right? Because as one church, as one family, we have said, okay, we're making this decision. And now we have this beautiful opportunity to say, okay, let's take advantage of this opportunity. Let's take advantage of now having this new name in order for us to relaunch ourselves into the community, in order for us to go to the community and say, hello, this is who we are, this is what we do, and this is what we're about and why. And so our staff, and let me tell you, our staff, we have a great staff here at a church, and our staff has been so prayerful and diligent and have spent many, many, many hours just talking about what this looks like, talking about, okay, now that we have this new name, like what can we do? And here's some questions we've been trying to answer, and I just want to share these questions with you. Some of the questions we've been trying to answer is this. How can we relaunch ourselves into the community? How can we grow God's kingdom in a community, with this community, with a clear identity? How can we grow God's kingdom here? How can we maybe shift our focus just for a season, just for a moment, to utilize a time that we have in order to infiltrate the community, in order to build up disciples, in order to do some leadership building? How can we do all of this in order to say, man, as, as one church holding hands together, how can we walk? And kind of being like, like Nehemiah. Do you remember the, the book of Nehemiah where uh, with a sword in one hand, with a shovel in one hand, they said, you know what, together, we're gonna go where God is working and we're gonna build this thing together. 
And so that's one of the things that we've been praying and hoping and saying, what would it look like for us to have a kind of relaunch process that encourages our church to participate like in Nehemiah, to participate in being the mission here, to where we, we make disciples, where we take the gospel and we trust God with the results, to being a people who faithfully go and share and serve, understanding that we are going to have to be resilient because, man, we love the Lord and we love this community. We love these people. So what would it look like to have that kind of relaunch process to where uh, we utilize the time that we have to kind of shift our focus and just be super intentional in doing these things? And so what I want you to hear me say is, is we're not going to stop doing things. We're just going to use the same time that we have to do things a little bit differently. And, and all of this, I know you probably have like a thousand questions, and I'm so glad that you do. So I want to go ahead and point you to February 16th. It's a Wednesday, February 16th at uh, 6.30. I'm going to be here at the building. And we're not going to make a huge event out of it, but I do want to let you know I'm going to be here to answer any questions you might have of saying, okay, what, what are you and the staff thinking? You know, because we're actually going to be talking to small group leaders. Uh, what are you guys thinking? Where are we going? Can you answer any questions? And I want to be here to be able to say, hey, here's what the relaunch process looks like. And then if you can't make it that Wednesday, I'm actually going to be going around to all the small groups at the beginning of March and just going into all the small groups and saying, hey, Here's what a relaunch process can look like, and here how, is how we want you guys to join in, because we want to do this together. We want to go out to our community and infiltrate our community together, saying, this is who we are, this is what we do, and this is why we do it. And all of this is an exciting change, because something has been transformed in all of this. And all of this is very exciting, but to some of you, this might be just a little bit of change. To some of you, this might be a lot of bit of change. And here's just what I want to encourage us with. All of this as a church is going to be a little bit different, but it's just so amazing to think about what the Lord has already done. It's amazing to think that really we're just embracing what God has done and we're helping our community embrace that, man, we are a new uh, congregation, a new people. Something happened five years ago with this merger with this other church, but man, we, we love you. And then here's something else that I'm just so convinced about. I'm so convinced that as followers of Jesus, we should be the best at pursuing and embracing transformation. As followers of Jesus, we should be the best at pursuing and embracing change. Because Jesus, think about it, Jesus has always asked us to change. Jesus has always looked at us and saying, yeah, you need to not be that way and you need to be this way. Yeah, you're dead, now you can be alive in me. Yes, man, you were, you were this, but now you can be a new creation. Jesus has always asked us to change. And so I think that as followers of Jesus, we should be um, the biggest advocates and pursuers and embracing transformation and change. And, and as I think about all of that, honestly, I don't know if you can tell, I'm just so excited to do ministry alongside all of you to be able to say, man, let us grow God's kingdom here. Let us keep in mind the souls of people and let's go with clarity. And so all of this leads us to a kind of transformation. And so what I want you to do is I want you to go ahead and look at 1 Peter with me. And once you find it, let's go ahead and stand up together and we'll start reading. We're gonna be in verse, uh, chapter one. Verse 1. And here's a fun thing. We're, actually, we're only going to read two verses. 
but these verses have so much in them, like we could spend at least five hours in this, these two verses, but we're going to just spend a couple minutes. So starting in verse 1, it says this, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to God's elect, exiled, exiles scattered throughout the provinces of Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, who have been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father through the sanctifying work of the Spirit to be obedient to Jesus Christ and sprinkled with his blood. Grace and peace be yours in abundance. This is the word of the Lord, and praise be to God. Amen. You may be seated. You may be seated. One of the things we're going to see all in, all in the book of 1 Peter, because this whole sermon series of Transformed is going to be like a couple weeks, if not many weeks long. But as we go through the entire book of 1 Peter, you're going to see this main idea, and I want to share that main idea with you. So this main idea is this, is that we are transformed for the mission. We are transformed for the mission. So I want you to write that down as just the main idea of the text this morning. We are transformed for the mission. And as we look at this, I just want you to realize, like, we are being introduced by a transformed Peter. And a transformed Peter is writing to a transformed people. And he's writing to them, and he's saying, man, I want you to be encouraged in Christ. I want you to be obedient to Christ and, and obedient to Jesus Christ's mission. And then as, as we look at this, and we look at this transformed Peter, here's just amazing. When we are transformed by Jesus, we're not transformed to be, like, put on a shelf. Like, we're not transformed to just, like, be like put there, and you stay there, and you kind of look pretty. No, we are transformed for the mission. We are transformed for a purpose. We are transformed so that we may know God and, and love God, the God who fully knows us, the God that fully loves us. And we are transformed in order for us to love God, to love others, and to make him known. And so we're not just transformed to be put on a shelf, guys. We are transformed for the mission, the great commission. And so that's the main idea, the main point that we're going to see in all of this. So I'm just going to keep back alluding to we are transformed for the mission. But like I said, we could spend like five hours on these two verses. So I'm going to try not to do that. But we are going to dissect this text just a little bit. And so in verse 1, here's kind of the, the point that we can summarize verse 1, is that we see a purposeful guide, a purposeful guide. When we think about God, God is a purposeful God. And God is not just a purposeful God, but he's actually a purposeful guide in our life. You see, when we are spiritually born again, meaning spiritually transformed. I don't know about you guys, but we kind of have to learn new things and we have to continually learn new things in order to live a life that is righteous in the eyes of the Lord. We have to live a life that is, that is pleasing to God, our Father. And what I love is that God is our guide, a purposeful guide to where he doesn't just like transform us and just leave us there and be like, hey, figure it out. <laughs> figure out how to live a new life. Figure it out, do whatever you want, whatever. No, 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 no. God has given us a guide himself, the Holy Spirit, to guide us. And he's given us his word as well as guidance in our life to where we can find wisdom and comfort and peace and just knowledge of knowing how we should live and why we should live. 
And so we are transformed and we have this guide to help us and navigate how to walk as new people. And, and really, we are made new people. So if you remember last week, I, I said this statement that whenever God changes a context, he changes a name. We'll look at what Peter says. He goes, Peter. Now, I know, I know this is crazy, but we're going to dive into why Peter says Peter. Did you know that Peter's name used to be Simon? And so there used to be a guy named Simon, and, and Simon didn't know Jesus. Simon meets Jesus and is transformed, like inside out. His context changed, and now Jesus looks at him in John chapter 1, verse 42, and says, yeah, now your name's Peter. And here's what's so fascinating to me. This guy doesn't introduce himself with the name that his mom gave him. He doesn't introduce himself with the name that was given to him at birth. He introduced himself with his new changed name that Jesus gave to him. He goes, my identity is what Jesus has done in my life. So I'm gonna use that changed name. So hey, my name's Peter, not Simon. I just think that's so fascinating that he introduces himself that way. And then he goes on, he says, an apostle of Jesus Christ. And you might be asking, okay, what's an apostle? Misael, I've heard that word before. I sometimes use it. I think I'm fancy, but I really don't know what that means. Well, an apostle, very simply put, is just, is just a messenger, but it's a special kind of messenger, a kind of messenger that Jesus himself chose, and there's 12 of them, to be authoritative eyewitnesses to Jesus' word, his words, and Jesus' works as well. And so this eyewitness, authoritative witness that, that God uses in order to guide other people as well, to speak and to write his word through the Holy Spirit. And so Peter says, I'm an apostle. And, and I just want to highlight why he says that. Because there are some traditions that will say that Peter was like a holy saint or that Peter was like the first pope. There's some traditions that think that, but... When we look at this, there's actually like two problems that we see by calling Peter a, a holy saint or, or the first pope. You see, Peter was a really passionate guy. He was a really passionate believer, but his passion got him in trouble a lot of times. But Peter, even as this passionate guy, he never claimed to be a holy saint or a pope. He claimed to be an apostle of Jesus Christ. And what we see is that if you're a believer in Jesus, you are called to be holy. You are called to be holy. We see this in actually later in 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 15 and 16, that says, but just as he who called you is holy, so be holy in all you do. Later we'll get into what it means to be holy, but here we see where to be holy. And then to say that, you know, Peter's this holy saint, well, in all honesty, if you're a believer in Jesus, you are also called a saint. I love what Psalms 30 says in verse 4. It says, sing praises to the Lord, O you his saints. Praise his holy name. And then Romans chapter 1 verse 7, again you have this moment where Paul is, is looking at the believers saying, hey, you guys are saints. So being a saint doesn't mean you have this holy, holy righteousness or you're holier than everyone else. No, being a saint means that you have been transformed by Jesus. It means that you are walking with him, your relationship with him. And then Peter never claims to be a pope or the first pope. Peter claims to be an apostle of Jesus. And in that moment where Jesus is looking at Peter and he says, man, Peter, like upon this rock, I'm gonna build my church. What's funny, if you look at the Greek, if you look at it, it says, hey, little rock, upon this big rock, I will build my church. And so Peter understood that he was kind of this little pebble 
that God used as an apostle for the glory of God. And so it's just interesting, just in this first moment that God is using this transformed man to write to these provinces, these places that were suffering because of Jesus. And he's writing to them and, and he's identifying himself to them. And the way that Peter identifies himself is just so funny to me because it reminds me of when I went to Nepal and when I went to Mexico. And so when I went to Nepal, these guys are so funny. I would go up to them and I'd introduce myself and I'd be like, hey, my name is Misael. And they'd, they'd kind of give me the same look everyone else gives me when I say my name. They're like, huh? What's your name? And I'm like, my name's Misael. You know, good to meet you. And every single one of them would introduce themselves like this. Hello, my name is Porpu. I am 34 years old. I'm a servant to the Lord. And I have one wife. <laughs> and they just like laugh like that. And I was like, what? And then, I, and then I go to another guy, like, hey, my name, you know, my name is Misael. You know, you guys know me. Hey, my name is Misael, you know, whatever. And he goes, hello, my name is Tumbu. I'm 31 years old. I'm a servant to the Lord, and I have one wife. Ah. And I was, like, I, was, I, was, I was like, somebody tell me why this guy's laughing every time he says one wife. Like, please, somebody. And, and the guy was like, hey, bro, um, in Nepal, if you're not a Christian, you have like five wives. And so they find it funny to say one wife because you're like, kind of look at us like we're different. And I was like, oh, okay. All right, cool, cool, cool. Yeah, I don't know. They just thought it's hilarious. Um, I, actually have a video, I actually have a video where I was interviewing them. And, and you can see their laugh and all that. I was going to show you, but I actually have that on a flash drive that I can't open. So that's another, that's another thing. Um, so then I go, I go to Mexico, right? And uh, I want to invite you to go to Mexico with me sometime because I don't want you to think, oh, if I go to Mexico, I want you to think when I go to Mexico. Um, because there's a missionary and there's a church there that we actually support uh, as a church. And so uh, the pastor, his name's Jose Luis. And so when I went... Oh my goodness, I found the same thing where I was like, hey, hey, my name is Misael. I'm great, you know, great to meet you, this and this and this. And they're just like, hola, me amo Hector y uh, yo soy un siervo de Dios y aquí estoy para servirte. Which really translates to, hey, my name is Hector. I'm a servant to the Lord and I'm here to serve you. Every time I met somebody, every time in the church, they'd go, hey, my name's so-and-so. I'm a servant to the Lord. I'm here to serve you. And I just thought to myself, and as I was reading this, I was like, that's so cool that these people are like walking around and identifying themselves as a servant to the Lord. And then they're saying, hey, I'm here to serve you. And I just thought, wow, do we identify ourselves like that as a servant of the Lord, as people here here to serve others? And if we don't, why is that the case? Or maybe we've never thought about that. Or maybe if we did, how would that change the culture of our church? How would that change the culture of our hearts? Of saying, hello, my name is so-and-so. I'm a servant to the Lord. Man, I'm here to serve you. 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 I just think that's just a powerful thought and a powerful statement that we even see here as, as Peter. Because he's saying, man, I'm here to serve you. And through the Holy Spirit, I'm going to write this to you because... God is our purposeful guide, and he's kind of using me as well to help and guide you. And we see that God used Peter to just speak encouragement, to speak guidance into these people who are suffering for Jesus. And I just want to make a really personal note here. If you're a believer in Jesus, I hope you've figured it out yet that suffering doesn't stop when you're a Christian. 
suffering doesn't stop when you're a believer. Here's the crazy thing that happens when we are believers in Jesus. Suffering doesn't stop, but suffering becomes a joy. Isn't that crazy? That suffering now becomes a joy when we are in Jesus. And not only are we going to see that in, in 1 Peter, but we also see that in James where it says, man, count it all joy, brother and sisters. Count it all joy when you suffer because it produces endurance. It produces strength. It produces dependence on the only one who can satisfy your souls, who's Jesus. And look, we're not called to be apostles like Peter but man, we are called by God as believers and we have this responsibility as believers to guide others to the truth and the understanding that to live is Christ and to die is gain. Meaning that I live and only live and can be alive because of Jesus. And if I'm living, if I have breath in my lungs, I'm living for Christ. And if I die, man, I get to meet the one I've been living for the whole time. And that's how I want to walk, and that's how we should walk, because we have this, this purpose and this purposeful guide in our life. Because again, we're not transformed to be put on the shelf. We are transformed for the mission. And so we see that God is a purposeful God in all of this. God is a purposeful um, encourager to these people who are suffering. He's a purposeful guide in every single circumstance. But then we also see that God, man, he's given us a purposeful gift as well. He's given us this purposeful gift. And we see this in verse two. Verse two says, who have been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father through the sanctifying work of the spirit to be obedient to Jesus Christ and sprinkled with his blood Grace and peace be yours in abundance. We have been given a purposeful gift. And so what is this purposeful gift, you might ask? Uh, man, it's the gift of salvation. It's the gift of transformation. It's the gift of being able to be transformed and changed. And just what's so amazing is that this gift of transformation and this gift of salvation is not on accident. Like anyone who tells you that Jesus came on accident is wrong. It was on purpose. It was so intentional. And, and this free gift of grace that we have from God, it's free to us, but I'm telling you, it had a cost. It had this eternal, this infinite cost that needed an eternal and infinite payment that only Jesus could pay because he was the eternal and the infinite payment. And what I love about this gift of transformation is that it's simple enough for a seven-year-old? What's seven for you? Is it that? Is it this one? One of those two. A seven-year-old can figure out and understand. Like a seven-year-old can understand this gift of transformation, but at the same time, a seventy-year-old can spend years and years and days and days diving into the richness and the depth of what it means to be transformed by Jesus. It's just so interesting to see the two because the seven-year-old can understand, man, God has done something that I can't. God is the only one that can save my soul because I can't save myself. God is the only one that has made the payment. And a seven-year-old can understand that, man, if I really repent and genuinely confess and believe that Jesus Christ is my Lord and my Savior and the boss of my life, 
and truly believe that he died for my sins and that he rose from the grave, I will be saved. I will be transformed. A seven-year-old, because I was seven when I understood that I can't, but God can. And then the 70-year-old can understand the same thing, but then ask the questions in light of this passage. Man, what, what does it really mean? Or how does it really look like? Or how does it really work? that God saves our souls. Like, how does that really play out? Like, I see these words like elect and foreknowledge and, and chosen. How, how, how does this work? Like, what is the economy of salvation, which really just means what are the steps in which salvation happens in, in the life of a person? And so we can dive in deep. And, and here's the thing. We could talk about the doctrine of salvation for like five days, like I said. And we'd probably just hit like, the very tip. So I'm not going to pretend like I'm going to summarize the doctrine of salvation in five minutes, but I'm definitely going to try. Uh, and so here's just some things that we know about this, because when we read this, we could get super confused and then just say, okay, what does all of this mean? So I just want to unpack this for us, because this is a purposeful gift, a purposeful gift for us. And so we have to understand this purposeful gift. And so as we look at this, we have to keep in mind a couple of things, especially where Peter says to God's elect. When we think about this, we have to understand kind of the context. Peter is actually writing to Gentiles. And so all of these uh, places you see here are people that are not Jews, people that were not part of Israel. And so he's writing to them. And what he's doing is he's actually kind of making this connection to the Old Testament of saying, hey, uh, you guys were not actually part of Israel. You guys were actually not part of the people of God. But in Jesus, in Jesus, you are now part of the people of God. You are now part of Israel. And if you think about Israel, Israel was the elect people, the chosen people in the Old Testament that God said, man, you're gonna be my people. I'm gonna walk with you. Let's go. And so what he's doing, he's kind of making this connection of saying, man, in Jesus, you're now part of this elect group. You're not part of, of Israel. And so in all of this, it's kind of funny because it's, it's almost like he's saying, man, you were not part of the group, but because you know a guy, you can be part of the group now. Because you know Jesus, man, now you can be part of it. And so that's what we have to keep in mind, especially where it says God's elect. But then here's another thing we have to keep in mind. When it comes to salvation and, and even beyond salvation, there is this divine balance Okay, and it's a divine balance that I don't fully comprehend, but it's a divine balance between God's sovereignty, God's control, God's reign, God's rule, and then God's loving kindness to give humanity free will. So it's just, there's this divine balance of God's sovereignty and, and then God's loving kindness to give man free will. And so as we look at all of this, again, I'm not gonna fully comprehend it and we're not gonna fully comprehend it, but here's some things that we know. Okay, so let's just talk about things that we know. So the first thing that we know is this really cool thing that, that God has divinely chosen humans. He has divinely chosen to save the souls of humans. There is no other creature that has a soul or no other creature whose soul can be saved except for humans. Like not even the angels have this special relationship that we can have with Jesus and with God the way that we have it because of how he saves our souls. The second thing that we know is that God is outside of what we know as time. God is omniscient. He's all-knowing. He is all-present. And because of that, God has already seen everything happen. 
Like he's already seen the past, he's already seen the now, he's already seen the future, and he's already seen it all happen. And so when we see this word like foreknowledge, well, man, God has already seen everything happen, so he knows who will be part of his family and who will not. And so we have to understand all of this, and we do have to be careful because think about this, like if you're at an intersection and you see a car wreck happen, it doesn't mean that you caused the car wreck unless you like stepped out or you hit the pedal too hard. But just because you saw the car wreck happen doesn't mean that you made it happen. And so in the same way, just because God sees something happen doesn't mean he made it happen. But man, because he's the creator, he has all the right to step into our time. He has all the right to take the reins, to take control. Because he is Lord and he is creator, but also God in his loving kindness doesn't manipulate us like robots. He doesn't. There's this divine balance that we see. Here's another thing that we know, kind of the third thing that we know, is that salvation is a work of God, not a work of man. Salvation is a work of God, not a work of man. If we look at John chapter 6, verse 44, I want you to go ahead and write that one down too. It says this, No one can come to me unless the Father uh, who sent me draws them. I will raise them up at the last day. And so here we see that it is the work of God, not the work of man. And even here in verse 2, what's really cool is that we see the entire trinity here in verse 2. We see God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, the one triune God who participates in transforming someone. So it's this work of God, but this work of God is also a gift that humanity can receive. A gift that humanity can receive. And we actually see this in Ephesians 2. Chapter 2, verses 8 to 10, where it's this incredible moment where it says, For it's by grace that we are saved through faith. It's by grace that we're saved through faith. It's this faith that we can put into God. But at the same time, it says, And this is not from yourself, it is the gift of God, not by works so that no one can boast. For we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works which God prepared in advance for us. So again, this divine balance of it's a work of God and this work of God, I mean, it's a gift that humanity can receive. You guys still with me? You still with me? I know this, this is a little bit heady. This is a little bit, you know, trying to think with me. Um, and we're gonna get to an application, I, I really promise. But I hope that as we, as we look at this, the more we know of God, man, would empower us and drive us to love God even more, to know him more, because many of you have experienced that the more you get to know somebody, the more you love them. The more, the more you get to know their heart, the more you love them. The more you get to know how they work, the more you get to know how their mind works, the more you love them. Maybe it might be a little bit more annoying, but man, you love them. So here's the next thing that we know. Number four, really, you could say what we know is that God has chosen He really has. We cannot escape the reality that God chose Israel in the Old Testament to be his people. And in the same way, God has chosen individuals to be his people as well in the New Testament. In 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 13, it says this, But we ought always to thank God for you, brothers and sisters, loved by the Lord, because God chose you as firstfruits, to be saved through the sanctifying work of the Spirit, and through belief in the truth. John chapter 15, verses 16 and 7 says this. This is Jesus talking. He says, You did not choose me, but I chose you 
and appointed you so that you might go and bear fruit, fruit that will last, and so that whatever you ask in my name, the Father will give you. This is my command, love each other. So there is this reality that Jesus has chosen, and and what I don't want to happen is I don't want you to be discouraged from sharing the gospel when you hear that. If anything, I want it to encourage you in saying, wow, like when I go out and share, people are going to respond to the gospel. When I go and share, people are going to repent from their sins before a holy God and a loving God. So we do see the reality, and we know the reality that God has chosen. But then here's the next thing that we see that just we know. We just know this. It could be the fifth thing you could say, is that God has given us freedom to adore or ignore him. God has given us freedom to adore or ignore him. You see, God does not force us to love him. God does not force us to accept him. God does not force us to be part of his family, but he has been very, very clear that he loves us, he knows us, he wants us. And he wants us to freely give ourselves to him. You see, we see in John chapter 6, man, John is full of these things. John chapter 6, verse 37, it says this, All of those the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never drive away. Again, this reality that humanity can go to God. In 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 9, it says this, The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise as some understand slowness. Instead, he is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. Again, this reality that humanity can come to repentance. In 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 3 to 6, it says this, This is good and pleases God our Savior, who wants all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth, For there is one God and one mediator between God and mankind, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all people. This has now been witnessed to at the proper time. Again, we see that God wants all people to come to the saving knowledge of Jesus, but there's a reality that some will either accept it or deny it. Some will adore, some will ignore. And I just hope you realize that like a good father, God sets these boundaries in which we can have all that we need for life and godliness. God sets the boundaries, but then also as as a good creator, God sees everything happen and and he knows everything and he can step into time. Uh, But then also as as a good father, man, he he doesn't force us to love him. He doesn't force us to be with him. And, And God even, think about this, God even knows we're gonna mess up, but allows us to make mistakes in order for us to learn. He allows us to go through things in order for us to put our dependence on him. And so I just hope you realize that there is this divine balance, this divine balance of God's sovereignty, his reign, his rule, but also God's loving kindness to allow humanity to have free will. And so here's kind of here's like a, a little bow on the whole, on the whole thing. One of the ways I just love to describe salvation and, and what God does as his transformation is actually using a biblical illustration of adoption. Because adoption is this beautiful illustration of just how amazing it is of God's work, of God's payment, and all of that. So I just want you to think about this. 
So in John chapter one, verses 12 to 13, it says this, yet to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Verse 13, check this out. Children born not of natural descent, nor of human decision or a husband's will, but born of God. And then Ephesians 1, verse 5 says, He has chosen us for adoption, to sonship through Jesus Christ, in accordance with his pleasure and will, to the praise of his glorious grace, which he has freely given us, the one he loves. So imagine this picture, okay? I'm going to paint this picture for you. Without Christ, we were orphans. Without him, we were these helpless orphans who, honestly, we were probably the worst of the worst. We were probably, didn't even want to be adopted. But as these helpless orphans, we couldn't pay what's necessary. We couldn't do all the paperwork. We couldn't get the lawyer. We couldn't do anything to adopt ourselves. We couldn't do anything to get adopted. We could do nothing. But what it took for us to no longer be orphans, it took somebody who could pay the price. It took somebody who could do all the paperwork and take all the time. It took someone who knew the lawyer and could be with the lawyer and say, man, man, I really love you and I want you and I'm gonna do all the work. I'm gonna do all the payment and I'm, and I'm gonna come to you and say, man, man, I have chosen you. I want to adopt you. And then again, think about this adoption process where Someone goes up to the little helpless orphan and says, man, I've chosen you. I've, I've done all the things. Man, will you come home with me? Will you come home with me? Like, all you have to do is just say yes. Like, will you just say yes and just come home and be with this family? And in that moment, the orphan has a decision. Do I say yes? Do I say no? And that's just, for me, just this beautiful picture that we didn't deserve to be adopted, but Jesus has come and says, man, here's, here's the free gift of adoption, man. Just take it. He has done all the work that we can receive. So that was a lot of things of just trying to think about and trying to wrap our minds around. And here's, here's the application for us. Here's the application that we can get. Is that we must rely on God's power. We must rely on God's power. So in what we've just seen is that without God, man, we're orphans. Without God, we don't have a purposeful guide. We don't have a purposeful gift. But we must rely on God. But here's the thing we have to get. We can't just rely on God for our salvation. We have to rely on God on everything else in our life. Because if we have relied on God for the most important thing ever, which is the salvation of our souls, we won't rely on him in our marriage, in our relationships, in our friends, in our jobs, in all of these aspects of life. What are we doing? Like, if, I, if I'm gonna really say, Lord, I have relied on you on everything of my soul, like you have changed my context, you've changed my name, I've relied on you, but Lord, I, I really don't wanna rely on you in this situation. I really don't wanna rely on you on this because I, I got this. I'm gonna rely on my power and my power alone. But that's not what we're supposed to do. 
if I'm going to rely on God on the most important thing, the salvation of my soul, and rely on his power, man, I should be relying on his power on everything else that's part of my story. Because it's his power and his power alone that raised me from the dead. And it's his power and his power alone that can change my situation, my family, my marriage, my friends, my thoughts, my feelings, my understanding, my knowledge. And as people who rely on God's power, we have to be we have to be vulnerable enough, and this is hard even for me. We have to be vulnerable enough to share those moments and share those stories of how God changed you because you relied on his power. I was saying, you know, at this point in time in my life, I was relying on myself. But man, here's a story of how God changed that. Now I can, I mean, I'm, I was relying on him and this is how God changed my life. And maybe it's a story of how God changed your life in the sense that he absolutely saved your soul, but maybe it's how he changed your life because of what he did in a different situation. And so we're gonna continue this whole aspect of just giving you a challenge every single week and giving you a challenge that, that is the mission life challenge. And so here's a challenge for us, and, and this is actually something I want you to do in the room, but I want you to share either after the service or this week. But as part of the mission life challenge, I want you to write down how God has changed your life. I want you to write down how God has changed your life, but in three to five sentences. Write down how God has changed your life in three to five sentences. And the challenge is not just to write it, but it's to share it with someone right after service or to share it with someone this week. And part of this life change could be the soul transformation, or it could be Man, I was walking in sin and God met me right there in my sin and he changed my life. And this is, this is what my life looks like now. And maybe some of you maybe don't have a story where God has like changed your life. But maybe you feel like right now God is writing that story in your heart. Uh, saying, man, I need God to change my life. I need God to meet me in my sin right now. I need him to meet me in my helpless orphan state right now. Well, here's the cool thing. <laughs> God's already met you there. He's already there. And so that's the mission life challenge for us. And so as we, as we sing here just a moment, um, if you just wanna like stay sitting and write your story in three to five sentences, man, go for it. If you want to stand and worship the Lord because of how he's changed your life, man, go for it. I want you to respond in the way that you see fit. So I want to go ahead and, and pray for us and we'll continue. Lord, thank you so much that you didn't just transform us to be on the shelf, but you transformed us for the mission. I'm so grateful, Lord, that personally, you've transformed my life and that you have changed my story and you've changed my life. Lord, I was an orphan and you rescued me. I was a sinner and you forgave me. Lord, I pray that even for the believer in the room that they'd be reminded to rely on God's power because man, I know that there's just so many of us trying to rely on our own power 
and our own will and our own strength. So I pray that they'd be reminded to rely on you because they've already relied on you on the greatest decision in their life, the greatest aspect of their life. So Lord, I pray that they'd rely on you on every other aspect. Thank you that you are a purposeful guide and you've given us a purposeful gift. There's just so many things, Lord, to praise you. And Lord, I pray that as as people, as my family in front of me and my friends in front of me write down their story in three to five sentences, I pray that as they share that with someone, that that would encourage them and encourage someone else. Lord, I pray that that someone would see a life transformation because of that story. They would spark different conversations. Lord, thank you for your word that we can get so much out of just two verses. Thank you for this time. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.